Hello. You are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on February 14, 2019 at the Centre d'études Maghrebines à Tunis, Semat. In this episode, Professor Charles Tripp, Emeritus of Politics with reference to the Middle East and North Africa at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London, talks about power and ridicule, political mockery and subversion in the Middle East and North Africa. To see related slides, please visit our webpage www.themagrepodcast.com. Thank you very much to Sema for inviting me and to all of you for coming out on a rather nice Valentine's uh, Thursday morning to listen to this. I think uh, I have a certain diffidence in talking about power and ridicule because one of the arguments are that there's a challenge to such a talk because dissecting humor particularly in the mouth of an ancient professor, can kill it stone dead. So there's a danger that by dissecting humor, you, you kill it. But also, of course, translating humor from different settings into others can be really problematic because uh, from one context to another, clearly things change. It, what makes people laugh in one place doesn't make people laugh about others. The sort of everyday references aren't necessarily picked up by people. And between individuals, clearly each of us has a rather different approach to what makes us laugh and uh, in that sense. And of course, translating political satire can be even more context dependent because it does depend upon the use of language, uh, wordplay, on imagery, on cultural markers that may mean something in one country but really don't mean much in another one. And also references to the everyday, which again, by their nature, are very context dependent. So I feel these are all challenges But I reassure myself, otherwise I wouldn't be a comparative student of politics, is that what makes it easier is that um, power shows many common features wherever it is. So there is, in a sense, a reassurance that the targets of mockery, when power is manifesting itself, are very recognizable in different places, even though they may take different idioms and different forms. So whatever the setting. So if one just takes the example, the wonderful expression of uh, Stephen Krasner, that the state is organized hypocrisy. Well, of course, you could argue that any state is organized hypocrisy, and the thing is to find out how to puncture the hypocritical pretensions of the state. You think about the way rulers behave and their enforcers, and again, that is a depressingly common idiom across the world in different cultures and different places. You think about the hypocrisy of religious authorities and how easy that is to ridicule some of the pretensions of those who would put themselves above others in one form or another. You think of inflated patriarchy, again, not unique to one part of the world, far from it. And you think about the pretensions of imperialism, military occupation, and so on. So you can see that in some senses, even if power is differently manifested, it clearly has a lot of common features. And of course, Middle East and North Africa, which I will be talking about today, has suffered its fair share of all those aspects of organized hypocrisy, rigors of social convention, religious pretensions, inflated patriarchy. But then, of course, so have many other parts of the world as well. What I hope is that some of the tropes that I shall be talking about today and, and bringing up as examples will be recognizable in many forms indeed. So I think one of the things that I'll be talking mostly about 
the visual because it makes better presentation in PowerPoint terms, but it's also quite striking and actually goes to the heart of what I'm trying to argue about how humor and satire is also a way of encouraging affect. It, it grabs people in ways that other forms of discourse don't always do. But as you will know probably much better than I do, that uh, Arabic uh, verse and satire and mockery has been a long tradition antedating Islam and very evident in pre-Islamic poetry as well as in the poetry of the Islamic empires. And when you look at what those satirists of the Abbasid and other periods did, they targeted social convention, they targeted religious hypocrisy, they targeted authority figures, usually from a, a safe distance, for one reason or another. They also targeted uh, group thinking, how people conformed in one form or another. And in fact, in the Abbasid era, you have this wonderful series of poems and uh, verse satires of one form or another, which again, mocking the greed, the ambition of those with power, the ostentatious religiosity, again, of people who would set themselves up as leaders. And just to cite Abu Nawas or Al-Jahiz, both of them are rich in satirical attacks on forms of power in one form or another. Another wonderful author is Abu Muhammad al-Hariri from the uh, 12th century Basra, whose maqamat featured the rascally hero Abu Zaid. And these illustrations by uh, Yahya al-Wasiti, which wonderful. And Abu Zaid was used as a figure to provoke and satirize society. So uh, he was always getting up to extraordinary tricks. And these are ones where Abu Zaid is pretending to be a doctor, Abu Zaid's pretending to be an imam. And what they were mocking was the gullibility of the people who followed him, how they would be persuaded by somebody who simply used the right formula of words to mock those notions of what it was that was possible. So, as I said, today I'm not going to look at, uh, it's not going to be a disquisition on Abbasid poetry, you'll be glad to hear. It'll be concentrating on visual satires. And the visual, I think, is important because when you look at the 19th century in Europe as well as in the Middle East and North Africa, the visual becomes something that is possible through mass reproduction of images. But before that, quite understandably, whether orally or written forms of verse and satire and mockery had to be recited or read in some way. And with the mass reproduction of images, it suddenly became possible to incorporate that into the visual world, the environment that people moved around. And through newsprint, through pamphlets, and uh, the Middle East and North Africa, in various places, the Ottoman Empire, but also in North Africa and in Persia. These were also to follow very quickly as they adopted. It's quite interesting to see how not long after the newspaper emerges as a form of mass communication, satirical newspapers emerge as forms of mass communication with the illustrations appropriate. So one of the things to think about, and I think when I go through all the, the different images and the different settings of it, is what does the image and the framing of it, the image, tell us about power and the nature of power, about what is at stake? Because one of the things that becomes apparent is that those who mock power and who satirize power have often got a very clear view, of uh, almost a surgical view, of what makes power tick, if you like. And so in a sense, it's their ability to pinpoint where the lies lie, where the hypocrisy lies, where the, the double-speak lies, which of course so annoys people. And of course, one of the things to ask about this is what effects, therefore, does such form of humor and character have in challenging the status quo? There are different arguments about this. What capacity has it to enrage the powerful or is it seen by some as a kind of safety valve for the powerful, insofar as it's tolerated? And in many places, and unfortunately many of the examples that I'll be showing today, you could argue that the ferocity 
of the reaction to ridicule and satire by the powerful is a testimony to something else, to something that tells you that that mockery has hit the mark. And it also tells you something about the vulnerability of power itself, which, of course, is a more interesting and interesting question itself. So you could argue Machiavelli, whom one might go to for many things, one of the things he was um, talking about was the visibility of the prince. And he was urging that the prince should place himself in a position whereby not only could he see everyone, but he could be seen or a certain image of him could be seen. And so, of course, what he urged is that all artistry should be used by the prince to persuade people that the prince they saw was actually the prince that existed. But, of course, one of the interesting things about this is that Machiavelli's advice was that they should only see what he allows them to see. But, of course, people see other things. And so one of the fears of the prince is that people are looking at him in a different way. And in a sense, that becomes part of the sharpness of the reaction. What, in other words, if he's projecting his power in a certain way, are people seeing it differently? So what I'm looking at is the vulnerability of power to satire and to ridicule. It shows power in a different light. Humor attracts attention. It engages people in a way that plain denunciation does not do so because it makes people laugh. It gets inside them. They begin to think about the world slightly differently. But it also helps to give a voice to things that are unvoiced. It goes against the official narrative and the official transcript that people are allowed to talk about. And equally, and this is again one of the great fears of power, it taps into wells of irreverence and that power itself, of course, feeds. And so it comes out very clearly in the ways in which the power feeds the very sources that people then mock. And so it's almost like a constant reaction. I think Larissa talks about this in her forthcoming book, about the way power represents itself provides an idiom that then people use against power to mock it in some way or another. So it knows power fears that kind of reaction because those in power know that their authority is more fragile than they would like people to believe. And it's not just the mass of people. They know that the people around them will begin to lose faith in them if they see their authority leaking out. I don't know if anybody has seen, there's an extraordinary film of the last days of uh, President Ceausescu of Romania. And there's a famous moment when he comes out on the balcony to address his grateful people, huge mass of people in the square. And he's surrounded by his henchmen and party Politburo. And at one point, people start to jeer and laugh at him. And you can see that he is completely disconcerted. He's used to going out on the balcony and everyone cheering. And suddenly people are jeering and shouting abuse and jokes. And what's interesting in the film is not simply that Ceausescu is a bit disconcerted. But if you notice, the Politburo suddenly starts to move back from out of his range. So in a sense, you see visually a very powerful representation of the fact that it's not just that the dictator is annoyed by the jeers, but he also realized, you begin to see visually, that the very fabric begins to crack up. And you see that wonderfully represented in this film. But what I want to talk about, as I said today, is thinking about modern history, how these forms of visual satire, visual representation, begin to take hold in the Middle East, North Africa. The images begin to reproduce themselves. And in doing so, of course, 
reproduce all the undermining of power that is part of the story itself. And as I said, Mastrovit appears in the 19th century with the emergence of mass publication. So one of the most famous is Abu Nazar Azarka, the father of the blue glasses. This is uh, the work of somebody called Yaqub Sanwa, which is James Sanwa, who is an Egyptian playwright and poet and satirist and journalist. And he was, as you can see from this, very critical of the Hadival regime and of predatory Europeans, particularly the British. And of course, Abu Nazar Azaka tended to be published in Paris, so it was very easy to be, or it was straightforward to be critical of the British in that sense. And the British were certainly predatory on Egypt. So this is one of Khadib Ismail selling off the pyramids to foreign buyers. And this is one of Ahmed Orabi trying to defend the paradise of Egypt from the predatory British and the great powers standing on the sidelines and laughing at the humiliation of Great Britain in the takeover. But of course, for Abu Nazareth, there were two assassination attempts on him, not for mocking the British, but for mocking the Khadim, and he fled to Paris. So from then on, his publication was smuggled into Egypt in one form or another. It's quite interestingly, the format of it was small enough to smuggle inside a more respectable newspaper. He designed it particularly. So it came into Egypt in a disguised form. There are wonderful stories of imams hiding copies in the turbans, unders putting it in the belts, the sashes of their galabiyas. So in a not illiterate society, it becomes visually and also verbally, because there's a huge amount of words as well involved in it, it becomes a very powerful and very subtle way of mocking the nature of both Khadibul power and British power in Egypt. Equally, in the Ottoman Empire, Turkey became one of the first places in which mass reproduction of satirical images emerged. And one of the most famous is Ali Fouad Bey, who starts in the 1860s, 70s onwards, mocking Sultan Abdul Hamid. And the caricaturists of uh, Ottoman Turkey, as you can see, found that Sultan Abdul Hamid's nose was certainly worth caricaturing. So much so that Sultan Abdul Hamid banned the use of the word nose in all <laughs> written output in the Ottoman Empire. And so one of the great things about this is that the way power reacts is often redoubles the humor, redoubles the satire. So when Abdul Hamid bans the word nose, you know that it's really got to him in, and that they've got something to do. So, of course, Ali Fouad Bey had to flee the Ottoman domains because banning nose was one thing, but, of course, he may actually get rid of uh, Ali Fouad. So he had to flee the Ottoman domains and only returned when there was the coup against Abdul Hamid that uh, diminished his power and then founded the wonderful satirical magazine Karagoz, which uh, continued for a long time in Turkey. In Lebanon, in the 1930s, there's uh, Al-Dabur, which is a, a wonderful satirical magazine. And you can see that uh, it's still going strong, and now it's got a website. But rather depressingly, or perhaps enduringly, for Lebanon, the problems of forming Lebanese governments were the same in the 1930s as they are in 2018. And in fact, the images are used are not dissimilar. He didn't use fat women in the bus, but he used clearly the notion of trying to get a Lebanese cabinet together has been deeply problematic in one form or another. In Egypt, again, in the 1920s and 30s, in uh, Kashkul and Rosa Youssef, this wonderful figure, Masri Hendi, would appear as a kind of uh, Egyptian everyman he was an Effendi in the sense he had European clothes, and he was a representative, an emerging middle class in, in Egypt, who was used as a foil to mock the powerful in one form or another. I had to put this one in because I wrote my PhD on Ali Meher Persia. 
otherwise not much figure, doesn't much occur in historiography or in politics, but actually a really interesting character. If you have a moment, I'll tell you all about it. But uh, it's here not for Ali Maha Persia, but for Masri Effendi. And this Masri Effendi was the invention of Alexander Sarukhyan, an Egyptian satirist and cartoonist and artist. And you can see that um, this is what I mean about the understandability of power across boundaries. This is a wonderful picture. Well, Mustafa al-Nahas, who was the prime minister of Egypt in the 1940s, was somebody who was, like many prime ministers, having to group together lots of warring personalities in their cabinet. And so this is Mustafa al-Nahas in the art lesson of his cabinet. These are all his cabinet members, Fuad Zaragadin, Mael Khatmi, and others in front. And they're all having to draw a picture and of course, what they're drawing, it's either grotesque pictures of him or pictures of themselves being squashed by him or their enemies. If you thought, and maybe the same in Yusuf Shahid's uh, cabinet here, but certainly with uh, Theresa May in London, if you got the Theresa May's cabinet to draw similar pictures of Theresa May, they'd all be doing the same kind of thing. So there's a kind of universality of that in one form or another. So that was, in a sense, brief historical background, looking at the ways in which mass reproduction of visual images becomes so important. But of course, what the main focus of my talk is looking at the contemporary politics. And there are four themes or four targets, you could argue, or four outcomes that I'm going to be talking about. First are the dictators who make themselves such obvious targets for caricature, although dangerous ones in one form or another. But secondly, there are the systems of power, not just individuals, but the ways in which the systems of power become satirized and caricatured. Thirdly, there are the risks and dangers of those who dare to satirize and to caricature, and I'll be talking a bit about that. And fourthly, it's to say something about the internet and the power or potential power it might have to allow transnational and exiled satire to hit the mark inside the country when it becomes incredibly, increasingly repressive and people are unable to do it within. So when you get to dictators, you get to the ability of dictators to self-caricature. This is the wonderful example of the Egyptian military museum before the revolution in Egypt in 2011. This is Hesni Mubarak leading a grateful Egyptian people. And you can see when dictators feel that it's necessary to represent themselves in this way, something's going wrong. So uh, Mubarak hired a whole team of North Korean artists <laughs> who have um, great experience uh, in these sorts of uh, pictures, and they just substitute one for the other. I think the same team then worked for Hafiz al-Assad as well. And so you could argue that this becomes a universal representation of the dictator in various ways. But of course, you could tell something was going wrong because already in 2010, this is before the fall of Mubarak, the system was allowing the publication of books like this with caricatures like this. This is Jumhar Qiyya, which is some people call the Jumlu Qiyya, that is the mixture of the monarchy and the presidency to the dynastic Mubarak, the Earl Mubarak had uh, taken on in Egypt. And so again, the ability to mock that in one form or another was very apparent. Then this, of course, is a well-known face to people in the room. You could argue the same thing happened. And as I understand it from um, Larissa, there were a whole series of poses. And Tunisians may have seen this, but they thought something else. And of course, after the revolution, people could then put up what they really thought those posters meant. The point I mean is that the dictator can project themselves in these most magnificent and bizarre and odd ways. But what they're never sure about is what effect that's having on the population. And in Tunisia and in Egypt, you can see it wasn't having quite the effect that they hoped it was, and it was ability to puncture that. 
Even after the overthrow of Mubarak in Egypt, it was very clear what people thought about the interim successor, Tentewi, Field Marshal Tentewi, who was the head of the SCAF in Egypt. And as many people see, saw it, there was no difference. And as people became more and more critical of President Morsi, so you had Mohammed Morsi and Mubarak, again, the morphing of one into the other. Not all of them took kindly to these kinds of caricatures in one form or another. And then, of course, you have Sneti Pazir Kuhn. This is uh, 2013 CC in uh, Cairo with uh, the famous Magritte uh, picture, which you're aware of. So, and this, again, is an internet meme, so a Facebook meme. So it became something that people could do, because if you tried to put that up on the wall in Cairo by that time, you'd be in real trouble. So curious period, 2011, 2012, you had amazing outpouring of street artists, caricatures, and so on but now it became much, much harder to do. So the caricatures of dictatorship, the renewed dictatorship, became apparent. This is the presidential debate. This cartoon, which again is a very common one in the sense of people often try and exempt the dictator and say, oh no, it's the people around him so dreadful. This is actually published by, on a website called Hadoud, which is safely outside Egypt. And this is basically saying, yes, he's fine, but the people around him are Rashid, which are, you know, obviously people you don't want to meet at night. And in fact, internet and so on, because of the nature of repression, has been a far more productive and fruitful place for mockery of Sisi. In 2016, President Sisi was talking about Egypt's massive debt, and he made a speech in which he said unwisely, by God, if it were possible for me to be sold, I would sell myself. And he said within hours, an anonymous vendor had put CC up on eBay with a slogan underneath that said, the president, free shipping, no return. Slightly used by his previous owners, the Gulf rulers. Bidding reached $100,000 before it was taken down. Again, it's how power puts itself in the way of caricature. It says things, does things, but then immediately mocked. And the next series, I'm going to show three short clips by an Iraqi artist called Al-Addin, which is the mockery of Saddam Hussein, but not just of Saddam Hussein, of the system of power under the bath. And what you've got to think about in each clip is, is quite short, it's less than a minute. What he, he listened to, Adel listened to the, the songs of loyalty that the Ba'athis would sing to Saddam Hussein. And what he noticed, although these songs were being sung by massed ranks of uniformed, mustachioed, bathy men, he listened to the lyrics and said, these are actually love songs. These are paeans of, or hymns of love to Saddam. And so he made them such. So he taught these different singers to sing in an Iraqi dialect, which you'll hear, the love songs to Saddam Hussein.
So you have to imagine those are being sung before 2003 by serried ranks of men, and they're very male, and they're expressing virility. And so Adel Adin has not only subverted the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein, but he's also subverted a notion of masculinity by, of course, turning these into, taking the words and using them in different ways. So in a sense, that was the next theme that I wanted to think about, which is how not just individuals, the Ben Ali's, the Saddam Hussein's, the Mubarak's, and so on, are the target of satire, but also how systems of power themselves are satirized. So it's not just about the person, but it becomes the, the system that is produced that, that, that reinforces the person. And so the first target that I'll think about is the army in Egypt. This was the clearly a system that endures come whoever's the president and has endured for an awful long time. And if the new amendments to the Egyptian constitution are to be passed by the parliament, it looks as if the army will be effectively the constitutional court of Egypt, which is a disturbing picture. In other words, it will become the decider of last resort when the constitution has been breached. And this was a slogan used uh, quite effectively by the armed forces in Egypt, the army and the people on one hand, to try and to reassure people after the overthrow of Mubarak, but to sort of suggest that there was a common interest between them. Others in Egypt were long suspicious of the army and saw this as a PR move. So you have this picture of a soldier posing rather awkwardly, an Egyptian child. And this was too much for one of the satirists of Egypt uh, called Sad Panda, because he did his murals and he always put a little sad panda looking at them. And this is an uh, army officer putting uh, a baby on a bonfire. This was painted up in huge in Mohammed Mahmoud Street. What was interesting when Sad Panda recounted this, he said that after he'd painted it, people gathered around and it wasn't the army or the security forces or the police that tried to, say, re reproach him or arrest him. It was the people who gathered, say, this is too much, this is awful, you're insulting the army, this is outrageous, haram alaik, and, you know, and anyway, uh, it was eventually painted over. So what he was trying to get at was the very system of power in which it, it happened. But of course, 
Sad Panda wasn't the only one to mock and decry the systems of power. These are various people who were killed in the uprising. These are actually people who were killed in the stadium in Port Said in 2012 and laying the blame with the rulers and with the army. And this, in a sense, is mocking the way in which the army said you need more army protection because there's a greater increase of terrorism. And, of course, it's turning that on its head by saying there's a greater increase of terrorism because you have more army intervention. And that's what the Andil, the, the cartoonist, seeks to capture in that. Equally, in Syria, the uh, wonderful uh, photographer and artist Jabir Esme, the uh, Syrian one, did this whole series, this is just four of them, of people's attitude to Al-Ba'ath, flagship newspaper of the Ba'ath party in Syria. And as you can see, each one that he photographed did what they wanted, turning into the moth and uh, a shab, or burning a hole in it, or just chucking it over their shoulder. And these are all either Syrian or Lebanese artists and writers, many of them safely out of Syria being photographed doing this. So for uh, Jabal Azmi, it wasn't just Bashar's of this world, it was the ways in which the system itself oppressed. And equally, some people may have heard this one. This is, in a sense, a mockery of the Saudi regime and the social conventions that have prevented women from driving until Hello. recently. My name is Hisham Fagi. I'm an artist and social activist. I don't really listen to music, but while studying in the US, I heard a song by a Jamaican guy that really caught my attention. I decided to do my own rendition with lyrics relevant to my culture, but without musical instruments. And now, with the help of some of my talented friends, I sing. idea. In other words, what he was mocking was not just a regime and a government, but a whole system that sustained the belief that somehow uh, harmful to women but to allow them to drive in one form. Of course, we could argue that things like this and other movements had had some effect on the government, because of course women now are, now are allowed uh, to drive in Saudi Arabia, although it's noticeable that those activists, the women activists who campaigned for it, have all been arrested. So the Ability to drive has to be a grant from the Al Saud. It can't be seen as a product of civil society. So what one has to think about is that, I'm not saying that song, but things like that may have some effect. But equally, a whole system of military occupation becomes a target. This is a wonderful poster, huge billboard put up by a Palestinian art collective near Ramallah. 
And this is, uh, the logo is Walls Ice Cream, which is a very common ice cream, and it's being made in the illegal settlements on the occupied West Bank. And of course, because they're ice creams, it's like the everyday, that's fine, that's not a problem, but of course, they are the symptom of an occupation. So they try to alert people to that in some form or another by showing that as well. And you could say uh, the famous late Palestinian cartoonist, Nadia Ali, was criticizing a whole system, both of occupation and ejection from the Palestinian homeland, but also of the uselessness of the Arab leaders in trying to mobilize in any sense to liberate Palestine. And it was cartoons like this, which effectively were showing up and mocking the inability and the paralysis of Arab leadership that got him murdered in London in the 1980s. So again, he paid a price with his life for mocking a whole system. And within it, of course, particular leaders who took it uh, sharply, in many senses, something that would be a target of mockery, but also something that was having a real effect on people's lives. Equally, in Iraq, one of the common themes in Iraq, and again, the fight against corruption, uh, caught by the Iraqist uh, cartoonist Al-Himyari, again, you could say is not common to, not unique to Iraq, the fight against corruption and the inability of the prosecution of corruption against the actual reality of corruption or the inequality of power is very apparent in different places as well. And equally, in Iraq, although actually beamed from Amman for security reasons, is the Bashir show, which is a wonderful satirical TV show by Iraqis. I won't show you clips, this is taken from clips. You see the kind of things that he's mocking. And he's mocking, of course, religious extremism of all kinds. He's mocking pretensions of communal leadership. He's mocking corruption. He's mocking the militias, ineffective and vicious politicians. You get a sense of that from, even from that small clip of the importance of it. But in a sense, as I said, he has to do this from the safety of Amman, because otherwise if he did this in Iraq, he would be in terrible trouble and possibly dead. So that leads me to the third theme that I want to think about, which are the risks and the dangers of mockery. And that is for those who satirize the powerful, there is a price to pay. Sometimes it's a terrible price. Sometimes it's a price that is still about the restriction of liberty. So, for instance, in Israel, the Abi Katz, the cartoonist with the Jerusalem Report, there was this selfie taken by Prime Minister Netanyahu and his friends, his cabinet, after they'd just passed the outrageous 2018 nationality law in Israel, under which Arabic was no longer seen as a second language, and it was downgraded, and effectively it introduced explicitly, and in legal terms, two-tier citizenship, one for Jews, one for non-Jews. And in a sense, it became something that many Israelis were outraged about. And Abi Katz was so outraged that he decided that this was very apt illustration for using George Orwell's 1984 site, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, which he felt, and many other Israelis felt, capsulated what the new law had done. But of course, the unfortunate thing in 1984, as you know, the people who say that are the pigs, because they come out on top. But, of course, representing the Israeli cabinet as pigs had problems for Abi Katz. And as a result of this, there was a huge national uproar and he was fired from his job. He wasn't prosecuted legally, but there were enormous arguments about freedom of speech, about for somebody who was using a legitimate form of protest or satire, that he should then be fired from his job, lose his job because of that in one form or another. And the same applies in Turkey, which, again, has a very rich and, you see, historical tradition of political satire in one form or another. And Musa Kalt, who's a Turkish cartoonist, 
Originally, he did this cartoon of who was then Prime Minister Erdogan in 2005. And Erdogan was getting completely, as Prime Minister, he didn't have such control over Parliament. He was completely tangled up in legislation that he was trying to bring in about uh, religious schools and so on. So he did a cartoon of Erdogan, which you could argue in the satirical stakes is quite mild and quite sort of gentle in some senses. Erdogan was outraged and he sued Musakat. He took him to court. He sued and he won the case. He said he argued the case and it succeeded in front of the Turkish courts that uh, Musakert had humiliated the prime minister by portraying him as a kitten with a ball. So Penguin, the satirical magazine in Turkey, then hit back by presenting Erdogan as all these kind of animals, monkeys, a whole menagerie, in other words. And of course, Erdogan sued again and he sued in the courts claiming mental anguish. Again, this is the thing about how power reacts is often ridiculous in and of itself. So he took the case to the courts of Turkey and happily they threw it out. This is ridiculous. This is not mental anguish at all. This is just satire. However, Poor old Penguin, as a magazine, his days were numbered. So uh, one of the possibilities for Erdogan, now president on the left, who had just opened the presidential palace and someone they did the cartoon of the cover saying in Turkish that Erdogan's looking rather displeased. The officials are saying, you know, here is the palace, your excellency. And he's saying what a, how bland it is. We could at least have sacrificed a journalist because, of course, as you know, in much of the Mashrek, it's a tradition to sacrifice a sheep when you open a new building, a new business or whatever. So why not a journalist? But it wasn't that that Erdogan then took him to court for. So Erdogan claimed that the official in the blue suit was making a hand gesture that suggested that Erdogan was gay. And so he then took the journalist to court and the journalist, the cartoonist was sentenced to a year in prison for insulting the president in one form or other. That was then commuted to a fine. But it should be noticed that since 2014, about 70 people, including cartoonists, have been sent to prison in Turkey for mocking the president or taking the president disrespectfully. And under these circumstances, poor old Penguin, the magazine, could not continue and went out of business. And uh, that's its last issue as it flies off into the sunset rather pathetically. But the same is true, of course, of Basim Yusuf, whose amazing Bernabe show was a highlight of Egyptian television 2011, 12, 13. But of course, he said that by 2013, they had to, 2014, they had to close it down. And he said quite explicitly, I'm tired of struggling and worrying about the safety of myself and my family. So it became impossible under Sisi to even do the kinds of things that he was doing under Morsi and under the SCAF. So the atmosphere of repression became huge. And you can see that it doesn't help you doing it online only. This is Amr Nohan's famous Photoshop. Uh, Amran Han being an Egyptian uh, cartoonist and uh, artist and satirist. And he photoshopped Mickey Mouse, which was then, of course, used by protesters in London, actually, in a safe distance from Egypt, uh, to protest against uh, Sisi. And you can see from their faces, they don't exactly take Sisi's authority seriously. This is one thing that, of course, they hate. You put Mickey Mouse ears on the president, and the president suddenly believes that maybe people aren't taking him as seriously as possible. But for Amran Han, it was very serious. He was sentenced to three years in prison in 2015. And the slightly chilling, or very chilling, phrase used by the Egyptian court when they sentenced him in 2015 to, to three years in prison encapsulates what I was saying right at the beginning of the talk, which is, they said, Amran Ahan has thoughts inside him that run contrary to those of the ruling regime. So in a sense, it was now trying to police the thoughts of those who had exposed themselves in some room through, through their cartoonists. So again, it becomes part of that. And 
The same story happens in Iran, where again, there's a, a very rich satirical tradition in one form or another. This needs a bit of explaining. It's satirizing effectively an ayatollah called Mezbah Yazdi, who used to be called Ostaz Mezbah. That was the, the title he had. And he came out with this nonsensical notion that uh, Iranian journalists were being given sacks of dollars by the CIA and carrying them on Iran to subvert and create cartoons and subversive things about the regime and so on. And to mock him, the Nikahang Kausar, who's Iranian cartoonist, does this, uh, made this cartoon where they called him Ostaz Timsat, which is crocodile, but sound a bit like Mizbah. So it, this is effectively, Mizbah saying, no one's going to help me get rid of this mercenary writer. And of course, strangling cartoonists and writers at the same time. There was an uproar. There were seminary students came out and demonstrated. Kausar was hauled before the judiciary. And in the end, he fled the country. And as he said, being funny is not that funny in Iran. So again, it became one of the questions of the price paid. And equally in Jordan, where Nahid Hattar did this cartoon after the killing of a jihadist called Abu Saleh, did this cartoon of Abu Saleh treating God as a servant. And the Jordanian authorities were perturbed enough to summon him to court for disturbing social order and for blasphemy. But on the steps of the court, he was shot dead by somebody who had objected to the portrayal of God, to the whole sentiment of, of the cartoon. And in fact, uh, a Moroccan uh, publisher of the satirical Baboubi published this cartoon and then was threatened so severely that he, looked, he asked for police protection. So again, uh, it's a system being mocked and a system that can, whether through the regime or just through, as it were, the formal system being causing the death and harm of the individual. There was an extraordinary Syrian singer, a musician called Ibrahim Khashouj, and he developed these extra wonderful songs in 2011 of uh, the popular Debke, uh, Debke Shabi, in Hama and Homs. And you see these wonderful, great um, assemblies of Syrians chanting this extraordinary song, which is mocking Bashar al-Assad. You know, Bashar, you're a robber. Bashar, you're a liar. Take your donkeys with you. It goes on and on. And it's, it, everyone gets caught up in it in some form. But he paid the price of it. He was uh, found in Hama with his throat ripped out by the agents of the regime again to emphasize the point that if you mock us by song, we will destroy your song. So this is an attempt to memorialize him through a bird um, doing something on the Assad. So, but another one who came up against that is Ali Farzat, who's a, again, a wonderful Syrian cartoonist, who, as you can see, did not treat authority in Syria very respectfully and demonstrates the sentimentality of the torturer in one form. And also the claimed security apparatus reforms weren't quite what they uh, had claimed to be in one way or another. And of course, this was too much for the regime, and the regime then thought to get its revenge by kidnapping Ali Farzat and breaking his hands. So again, as Khashoggi's voice box was ripped out, so Farzat's uh, hands were broken so that he could no longer draw. But of course, that's a drawing by Farzat of himself in hospital. And you can see somehow the feeling that he hasn't actually got the message that they wanted to inculcate <laughs> in one way or another. So there is resilience, but of course, huge danger in one form or another. So the final aspect to think about is whether the internet provides some kind of space in which these things can be said and reproduced in ways that they have access to people that makes it safer to do so. But of course, saying that, one has to remember the fates of Amran Ohan or Nahid Hattar, again, whose uh, cartoon of the jihadi and God were on an internet site, and uh, Amran Ohan, it was an internet meme uh, that uh, got him three years in prison 
in Egypt. But still, there's a notion of remoteness, which is part of it. And one of the, some people may know, the wonderful uh, Carl Sharo, who's an Iraqi, Lebanese, British cartoonist and satirist, has this wonderful website called Carl Remarks, in which he satirizes not just Middle Eastern regimes, but also, of course, those who would look and study and dominate the Middle East, including Western powers. So he did this fantastic version of Egyptian monopoly, where uh, this is the new Cairo, as it were, about what happens in in Cairo. But he also did a wonderful satire of, to throw it back at British and uh, Western commentators, saying, how would the Brexit debate, I'm not going to go to that one, but it's a nightmare that we're all going through in London, how would that be reported if it were happening in a Middle Eastern country? And he did this fantastic riff on as if the New York Times was reporting the Brexit debate and the divisions in Britain about it. And it starts with, in order to understand the Brexit debate and the divisions in Britain, you have to go back to 1066, when (laughs) the Norman invaders took over. and, and, And it just goes on. And of course, when I read the rubbish that was written about Iraq and what was happening in Iraq, in order to understand what's happening in Iraq, you have to go back to the 7th century, please, you know, really. But so, in a sense, he's a wonderful satirist which tells people how to look at what they're looking at and look at themselves looking at it. So it becomes a a double form in one form or another. Hadoud, as I mentioned, is a a wonderful platform. It has an office in Amman, but it's a registered office in London. But again, under its leaders, Kamal Khoury and Assam Uraqat, it publishes many of the cartoons that you've seen about Sisi are published on Hadoud because you can't publish them in Egypt and survive. So you publish them on Hadoud and they're broadcast beyond that in one form or another. So it chooses multiple targets in Iraq, there's a, a terrific um, website or Facebook site called uh, Fish, which means deflate uh, in Iraq. And again, it's a satire aimed at um, Daesh, at uh, government corruption, uh, which it regards obviously as two sides of the same coin. It received countless threats in one form or another, and many of its members live outside Iraq itself for safety. There's also something which looks rather sad now, but actually was very funny at the time, is Top Goon, which was produced by Syrians living outside Syria in the first two years of the Syrian revolution uh, uprising of 2012, uh, satirizing Bashar al-Assad. And I'll play you a short clip of this, but it's basically, again, they had to do it for safety's sake outside Syria, and it's stopped now. There are several episodes and really worth seeing, but I'll just show you a small part of that.
The idea is, of course, that if you're in the middle of the race, and you have a lisp, it's a bit of a problem. So, in a sense, it becomes part of the character. But the last set of images is something that came out of the Iranian uprisings in protest to the falsified election of President Ahmadinejad in 2009 and of the Green Movement and the, the stolen election. And it was when the government of Iran tried to use the internet to its advantage. So in a sense, it saw the power it had to get into people's houses and onto their laptops and phones and stuff and tried to use it itself. So this comes from the uh, a demonstration against the fraudulent outcome of the election in December of 2009 in the university campus. And it was the arrest of a student leader called Majid uh, Tavakuli. There was a large demonstration. There were scuffles, the police, the riot police came in and so on. And then he disappeared. And the next time he appeared was on the internet, effectively sponsored by the Iranian government, dressed up as a woman. And the story of the Iranian government was that uh, Majid Tavakuli was so cowardly that he dressed up as a woman in order to abandon his followers and to escape the attentions of the police. So what they were trying to do was humiliate him, they said, and at the same time demonstrate that uh, he didn't care for his followers. So he tried to break the sort of popular following. But of course, what the leaders of Iran had failed to realize is that uh, they weren't the only ones who could use the internet in one way or another. And so the next uh, image that came up was that, uh, very, very quickly after that of Majid uh, Tavakuli, uh, followed by the next one, which is, of course, getting all of them. And in fact, then by the installation of a website called We're All Majid, where Iranian men across Iran dressed up in either photoshopped themselves into chadors or put headscarves on. And they said, there's nothing humiliating about dressing as a woman anyway. Why should it be a humiliation? So what's the problem? And so in a sense, the very tactic that the regime had used to try and humiliate a student leader had a backfire. And the theme was taken up by a wonderful Iranian artist called Ramin Hayarzadeh, who uh, then um, did a whole series called Bad Hijab, 
of women being policed by other women in Iran for wearing bad hijab. But of course, he put his own face in all the faces of the women, both those doing the arresting and those being arrested in one form or another. So I hope that's given you some notion of the variety and range, but also, of course, the risks of, of ridiculing power in one form. And the ridiculing of power is not just the ridiculing of an individual, but is closely also ridiculing often systems of power, popular prejudices in one way or another. So I'm not really coming to a conclusion, but a couple of things to just remark, I think, at the end. The first is that political satire and the deflation of power, pinpricking the, those who puff themselves up in one form or another and challenging social norms, are making people see themselves otherwise. And this isn't always a comfortable experience. It's clearly not a comfortable experience for the rulers, because it reminds them of the fragility of their rule. And the profound disrespect that may be circulating unseen under the outward show of placidity or conformity. But it's also, of course, a challenge to popular prejudices and beliefs. Uh, it's challenging many of the public to think about their own prejudices in one form or another, and that also can be an uncomfortable experience and problematic. And in this sense, therefore, political satire is the same everywhere, whether it's Middle East, North Africa, Northern America, Europe, or whatever, and very understandable, though even in very different contexts. And the second thing to say, of course, is something that's become sadly apparent in the presentation I've given today, which is the political context in much of the Middle East and North Africa region can make this a very delicate and often dangerous line to tread for the satirists themselves. Across the region, they are beleaguered, they are censored, they are imprisoned, they are killed, they are chased into exile. But electronic media this is one of the hopes anyway, can to some extent free them from state control if they can free themselves from the long, not always from the long reach of insecure and violent governments, and also thereby give them a wider audience in their home country and across the region. And ironically, thinking about the internet and its transnational spread, it takes us right back to Abu Nazara. Abu Nazara smuggling the issues of his satirical magazine into Egypt, disguised in other forms, where they became hugely popular and hugely successful and helped not only to undermine the authority of the Khedi, but also the occupation in one form or another. So in that sense, it reminds rulers that even if their power may be formidable, their authority may be fragile and vulnerable, therefore, to the slow erosion of popular contempt. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. To see related slides, please visit our webpage www.themaghrebpodcast.com. Other episodes are available on our website, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmaghreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.